Scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all today. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about the church as a model of what God wants humanity to be. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, Ephesians 2.15, out of the two. And he's talking here in context, a long context in Ephesians chapter 2 about this perennial age-old division, strife, conflict, misunderstanding, fear, suspicion between Gentile and Jew. And yet Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition. He's killed the hostility and has created in himself one new humanity. And in one body, verse 16, he's reconciled both of them to God through the cross. So at the same time that all these people are being reconciled to God through the cross, these people groups are being reconciled. Right out of the gate, the church is, is you know, transnational, transracial, transethnic. It's about human reconciliation and vertical reconciliation with God. Altogether, that's how Ephesians presents it. And it really kind of mirrors love God, love your neighbor. You know, the greatest command, part 1a and part 1b, you can't have one without the other. First uh, John makes that point. How can we love God whom we have not seen if we don't love our fellow human being whom we, whom we see every day? They go together. That's what love God looks like. It looks like loving your fellow man, your fellow um, people in different groups than you, whatever, however you term that. So what we want to do in, in Ephesians is, is go now to the second half of the book, uh, chapter 4 through 6, in the context of this, the church being presented as, as God's ongoing community of reconciliation and unity, and God having called his people to participate in this plan, this loving plan, which he crafted before time began, Ephesians 1 says, and then launches this plan with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And really, that's what the first half of Ephesians is about. We talked about this last week. We are one new humanity. We are God's one reconciled, but notice this, rec and reconciling people. Reconciliation is an ongoing thing. We are converging on what uh, Colossians 1 says Christ is. He not only created all things, He is the one in whom all things hold together. Everything in heaven and on earth. Like He's the hub of a wheel, if you will. And as we converge down those spokes you know, toward Christ, what happens to the distance between each of those spokes? It's reduced. You can't move down a spoke toward the hub of a wheel without, to, to toward the hub without getting closer to all the spokes. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. We are that, but we're supposed to continue being that. There, who, who have you not reconciled with? Who, who is the news telling you that your group needs to permanently be estranged from in the name of purity or safety or something? And here's the gospel exploding into the middle of that and saying, no, 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 this is about reconciliation. And I really appreciated Charlie's talk. It's about oneness. 
Not two-ness or thirty-ness or fifty-ness. Oneness. So we are God's reconciled people who are continually reconciling. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about racism and group chauvinism, all the forms, political groups and nationalist groups and linguistic groups and all of these things that are transcended in the gospel. Anyone who is baptized into Christ puts on Christ and in Christ, immediately, Galatians 3.27 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ and heirs to the promise to Abraham. That heart on our timeline, when God comes into the human morass of sin and says, I'm going to do something about this. And through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, ultimately, all the nations or tribes of the earth are going to be blessed. That's where we're going. And the church is sort of God's exhibit that that can be possible even today in Jesus. Today we're going to focus on the second half. Just by little, you know, excerpts and, and samples. Second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6. We talked about the fact that we are God's one reconciled people and reconciling people. And now we need to talk about how we therefore should act. Because that's what Ephesians does. He doesn't just go, God did this, chapters 1 through 3. He then says, God expects some things of you. It's sort of like chapters 1 through 3 is the indicative. Here's what God did. That happened. Chapters 4 through 6 are the imperative. So what? What are we going to do with that? What legacy has he left us? What expectations? What demands? What we are in Christ should lead to how we act in Christ. And so what does it look like when we are truly eager? So I, I mentioned in the email that I sent out as a kind of primer for this session today that we're going to do this interactively today. Kind of um, come at it from a different angle. And so I invite your participation. We've got a couple of mic runners. If you have a comment or a question, I'll have a few questions for you. Uh, please feel free and wait on the mic though so that people watching on our live stream or for the recording later can also participate um, you know hear, hear the questions as well um, what we want to do then is is first of all start with the, the opening section of the second half of Ephesians I therefore chapter 4 verse 1 in other words there are implications of you being God's one new humanity of us being God's one new humanity therefore he doesn't just end the letter and say you know, see you later. There are implications. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. To which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain unity. I want to start right there and ask the question, are our mic runners ready? Why does establishing, or we might even say restoring unity, because that's what reconciliation is. They really travel together. They're all about oneness being the desired status or state uh, for, for, in God's mind for us. Oneness. So establishing unity, maintaining unity, restoring unity, all those things. Why is eagerness such a part of this? Greg. It's kind of hard to accomplish, so you can't just have it half-hearted. Like, well, okay, I'll try it for a day or two, but no, you really need to stick with it. Right. It's a little more difficult than just a day or two effort, right? A sample. Ah, give it a try. Um, try a new soft drink, see if I like it. A little more involved than that, right? Yeah, that's good. What else? Why don't you say, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Linda? 
Well, clearly, if you're not in unity, that means that there is an issue between the people. And you have to really want to get over that in order to, to make peace. You have to make concessions, and you, know, you have to really make an effort to do that mm -hmm. and get over whatever preconceptions you might have about how the other person is wrong. And like you often say, you know, be humble and, and try to just reach out to the person and not give up, really, really keep pushing. Right, so you've mentioned several good things there. Persistence, uh, being, having a broader mind than just your own perspective, uh, issues that might be in there. Uh, Jake? Oh, I'm sorry, Phil and then Jake? Well, I, eagerness implies you want it. You want to do it. Yeah. You are you're motivated inside to, mm -hmm. to achieve that. So desire. At the end of the day, don't we most of the time, if we're honest, end up, not maybe the day after a sermon that makes you feel guilty, or something goes south on you because it was, it was wrong-headed on your part, and you're like, i got to do better. I'm not talking about the, 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 the hot minute after that, you know, that week. I'm talking about, on average, we basically do whatever we want to do. We do. Whatever we think gives value, thrills, is beautiful, is fun, uh, builds up our security, whatever it is we want most fundamentally in our gut, that's where we tend to go with our priorities and our actions. Uh, and so really a lot of it's about changing what we desire. And the gospel does that. It wants to revolutionize what we think is good, true, and beautiful. So we often work on the edges, like let's, let's behave right, instead of working on the heart. Yeah, Jake? I was just going to say that this... Um Unity is very evangelistic. I get overwhelmed with how do I share the gospel? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be talking to people about God? But just the fact of showing unity is, is a proclamation of the gospel, really, to the world. And, and, and that's exciting to me because I, I can do that. That's, that's easier than, like, planning out a whole curriculum with somebody to sit down and study the Bible. That's, that's yeah. very evangelistic. That's great. Yeah, Jesus' prayer in John 17, he makes that very point. So that the, you be one, disciples, so the world might believe that the Father sent the Son. That's the gospel. Its credibility hangs on our oneness, and that excites you so you're more motivated, you get more desire, to, to uh, more eagerness toward it. Yes, Tanya? And along with that, um, there, it's implying that you're leading other people to unity. So, for example, if you got up there and did a sermon and you weren't eager, you always come across eager. We wouldn't really be interested in listening and kind of, you know, excited to put those things into practice. Mm -hmm. But if you're eager and you come across that way, people are going to listen more and want to follow that and have more unity. So why do some of you nod off? <laughs> Just kidding, it's not that frequent. And when you do, I, I do not judge you. I, I've had, on vacation, I listen to other people speak, and I'm going, so this is what they're going through. <laughs> yeah. Greg? The uh, New American Standard uses the word diligent mm -hmm. instead of eager. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that gives it a slightly, you know, nuanced uh, definition there. I don't know what the Greek word is and what it literally means, but diligence implies a keeping on yeah. You know, maybe when the eagerness is kind of worn off, True. Yeah. that we're being diligent, we're something we're going to continue to work at mm -hmm. because we understand the importance of it and we're going to stick with it. Yeah, good point. 
David? Just to piggyback on that, I actually did look up that Greek word this week. Ah. Um, and I think, I don't know, spude, is that right? You probably know better. It, but it means I, speed. I didn't look it up. What, what okay. is it? Which it, word? Spude, I think, or something. Okay. It means speed, right? And so it's almost this urgency with it that it's not something we can take lightly, but something we actually have to make an effort, like we've mm -hmm. been talking about, but yeah. something that takes an effort to go quickly to do. Right. Yeah, great. Appreciate both of those. Yes, Michael. I think um, when you are striving for unity, you're striving for a better harmony in life. And if you're striving for that harmony, you're going to do it eagerly. You're, you're going to desire for that to mm -hmm. occur quickly. Great, great point. Good point. Appreciate all those, those good points. All right, I, I see in this text three components. We're just going to have a question or two about each of these this morning. Um, if we're going to be God's one new humanity again the emphasis and charlie and i did not confer when he was up there i was like he's going to ephesians 4 right now i know he is and he did you know one lord one faith one all that unity and reconciliation the, the central idea is the idea of oneness the word unity and unified and unification they all have the word one in them in latin uni uni however you'd say that um but even reconciliation you're bringing back something which has been undesirably, you know, alienated, separated, estranged. You're bringing it back together. So it's the idea of oneness. We're God's one new humanity. How do we model that? So we should practice it within our own midst, you know, among our, our relationships with one another, so that it's like that, that city on the hill for a very divided world we live in. I mean, right now, our, our, our world is very divided. What if there was this glimpse of another possibility? And that's what we're offering up in Jesus, by the power of Jesus. So we're to model that. Uh, we should relate to people outside our community provisionally as if they're, we, we would like to have you be a part of this. Come join us in, this, in the quest, you know, even. So that there's reconciliation and unity that we're trying to practice all the time to model this. I see three components in Ephesians that I want to, you may see others, but um, we're going to talk about these today. One of them is we've got to appreciate the foundation of oneness. There are certain character traits that we've got to exhibit, relational character traits that are necessary for oneness, and then all of that should be uh, springing forth from a commitment that is necessary for oneness. Just old-fashioned, that's important to me, that's a priority, I'm committed to, to you, and you're committed to me, to being one. All right, so let's talk about each of these in turn. Um, first of all, foundation. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 again. So this is what Charlie, uh, one of the passages he quoted with the word one all through it. How many ones, that significant Bible word one, there is, you know, Deuteronomy 6, what hero Israel, the Shema, the Lord our God is one. How many ones are in Ephesians 4? Seven. That's interesting. It's, it's you know, a, a, Three and one are often statements in the Bible in terms of biblical numerology, you know, the symbolic quality. They're not counting. It's not about math and empiricism. It's, they're, they're symbols. And they're ideas of, especially seven, of perfection, completeness. So when, it's no accident, in my view, that when Paul says there are seven ones that really give the church its coherence, that, that, that constitute it as one new humanity, Right? Um, this is the, the foundation. Um, it's, this is a picture, in a sense, of perfect unity. It's, it's seven ones. 
And so we have to build our unity on, a, on the appropriate foundation. There is one body. The Lord's Supper is not just me individually communing with God. It is that. But 1 Corinthians 10 says the one bread is us. Um, it's, a, it's our participation. He makes that link uh, uh, very explicitly. Um, there's one spirit that pervades all of us. We're baptized. 1 Corinthians 12 says we're all baptized into, in, in, into one spirit, um, whether Jew, Greek. Same thing as Galatians 3. Like It transcends all these other identities we have in our people groups. And it's the one spirit that, that pulls that off. It's one hope. So this brings up the story. You know, the, the, where we're going, the eschatology, the, the latter, the end of it all, the, sto the story on the Bible that goes from creation to new creation. Like we're living out of a story. Everybody is, but that's ours, the Bible story. That's our narrative that gives us our identity and our priorities and our values and what we, our sense of beauty and all that. One baptism. We've already talked about that. One God and Father of all. You know, harking back to Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. So that's got to be the foundation. What I want you to notice here is that the, the call to unity isn't just a call to any old unity based on any basis that we might come up with. Well, unity and harmony are such wonderful, beautiful things. Let's just all be unified. Based on what? Well, on the idea that we all should be unified. Is that what he's saying here? No, he's saying God did some specific things. <laughs> Ephesians 1 starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who before time began, I'm paraphrasing, called this group of people called the church to the praise of the glory of his grace and all that. Like, this is something God did. We were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, right, cre creates us, saves us, creates us in Christ Jesus. We're his workmanship and all that. So there's a basis that comes from another place, outside humanity, outside this world. It comes from God that is the foundation. And, and you can see it in these different ones here, body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father of all. There's only one of each of those, and that has to be the foundation. So I wanted to ask you this question. How well does unity hold up when its basis is nothing more than the call to unity itself? Any thoughts on that? Is that a weird question? When the basis is just the same thing as the, the desired state. Well, we need to be unified, so let's just all be really unity-ish. Does that ring hollow? I think that's really common in our world. How well does that hold up? Thoughts, Greg? It's kind of just a vague idea. You really need something more concrete. Mm -hmm. This is what we feel is right or we feel is good, let's work toward that. Right. You just say unity, it's like, what's that mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you, what, what created disunity in the first place? What's the, what are some basic reasons people aren't typically, the default isn't unity. It's division, sectarianism, fear, suspicion. We talked about all that in subsequent weeks. That's kind of the default of humanity. We've been killing each other ever since the beginning of time and arguing and, you know, why? Linda mentioned one of them. We all have different perspectives on things. We see things differently. What else? We sin? Yeah. Got a mic up here? Hey, John? 
So I don't know if this will be a helpful part to remember, and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I recall, the word for spirit in Hebrew and the word for breath are the same word. That's right. Yeah. So breath is a sign of our life inside, and to the early Christians and to the Jews, how we spoke is a sign of the spirit that we have. So that's why at the Tower of Babel, for example, everyone couldn't understand each other. It's a sign that they all had a different spirit, mm -hmm. a spirit that contested with one another. But at Pentecost, everyone was possessed of the same one spirit, right. and they all understood each other. Yeah. And so, in my mind, unity is the same life within us and the same speech without. That's mm -hmm. a sign that we're possessed of the same one spirit. Yeah. So it has to be eager, it has to be living it, you have to be possessed of the one spirit, which is not our own will, it's the Holy Spirit. Right. Really well said. I think that's, that's great. Appreciate that very much. I mean, think of all the, you know, I don't want to poo-poo the idea of, of people getting along. And I'm about tired of people, of, of Christians, in the name of God, somehow acting like it's unfaithful to try to be, like, to get along. Like, harmony is good. It, it comes ultimately from God, even if people don't believe in God. That, it's a derivative of God. Love, harmony, peace, that's, that's a divine thing. On the other hand, the idea that just the, the key to unity is just to tolerate everything, all you are, you're just moving the ball back to square one. It's just all humanity with all of our sins and all of our different spirits that are in, informed by any number of things besides God. Selfishness, you know, Sin, we're broken, our intellects are broken, our wills are broken, our ethics are broken. Sin breaks everything. It warps everything. And so if you're just going to say, hey, humans, be, keep being yourself, but we'll just be unified because we love unity, that's basically saying you're not moving the ball forward. You're just saying in your raw state, going 40 million directions, we'll just have unity somehow. And I think often it's just a label. It doesn't work in, in, in functional ways on the ground. When, you re, when, people start really, when the gears start meshing, sparks start flying. It's, it's, great, it's, it's like Greg said, a very vague thing. So we do have to have that single animating spirit that we all share, as John says, that comes from God. Did you have something there? Oh, Tanya, yes. I was going to say, like, you know, some uh, things can be unified in evil instead of for yeah. good and for Christ. Like the Nazis, World War II mm -hmm. is a perfect example of unity, but it was for evil. Right. Yeah. Mussolini, Mussolini joined up with Hitler. You know, unity, <laughs> at least for a little bit. But yeah, that's horrible. Worse than nothing, actually. We wish you would stay divided. Yes, sir. Yeah, and the, and the Tower of Babel that the gentleman brought up, that's really interesting, too, because the unity allowed them to accomplish a great thing, there's power in unity. Uh -huh. The problem was it was done to bring glory to themselves rather right. than to God. Exactly. So unity without bringing glory to God is a futility. Yeah, that's a great point. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Randy has a point up here, Stephen, Randy Fox. Yeah, this is a great question because, you know, rarely would a group unified quote-unquote group, say, well, we're just unified for unity itself. There's usually something around which people coalesce, but it's often thin, anemic, mm -hmm. hollow. I mean, even good stuff. I mean, let's look at the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Would we say we're unified around that? That's an incredible document, but mm, not real. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it can maintain a little bit of unity for a little bit of time, but then it starts to splinter off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 
the, I love your wheel and hub analogy because unless we're unified around the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all things were made and for, through whom all things hold together, that's the, that's the thing that holds things together. Right. And it does take an eagerness that you, that you mentioned you know, up front because, as you've also pointed out, the default state tends to be this, at best, atrophy, and at worst, just open hostility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like if you if you want to go do some physical feat, you know, run a marathon or something, that, that's a, you have to get up and do the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to do the training mm-hmm. or you'll never accomplish the feat. If we want to, if we want to get ever closer to that hub, we got to be unified eagerly, but around, around Jesus. Right. You know? Great. Good stuff, y'all. Appreciate it. All right, let's go to this next point about, um, I also had this one, just w- the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Just another way of saying it, it's got to be the outgrowth of the things God has done. That's where the unity comes from. The one humanity is not God's one humanity. It's, some, it's, other, it's unity ba- doing something else based on something else. You know, uh, evil, whatever, uh, if it's not on the foundation of Christ, his, his apostles and prophets. All right. Um, so let's go now to, there we go, character traits of oneness. And I'm, I'm speaking here about relational character traits. We all have relationship, you know, um, habits, ways we relate with other people. And sometimes they're healthy, sometimes they're not so healthy. You know, they're suboptimal. <laughs> Another way to put that is not very biblical. And, and I would say every one of us has, you know, room for improvement, right? We're probably good at certain things and not so good at other things. Um, but for unity to happen, he does address the way we relate to each other. How, what are the character traits that we bring to uh, the body of Christ? And there are three in, in particular mentioned here. Verse 2 of Ephesians 4, he says, with, So I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And then that's sandwiched, you know, in between the, the, the urge to walk commensurately with who you are, to act like you are, like who you are. And, and then on the, other, the other piece of bread is that eagerness to maintain unity. So you can't have that without, presumably, without these character traits. So humility. How does humility contribute to maintaining unity or reconciling it, you know, when it's not there? Humility and unity, how are they related? Hey, Greg? I guess one, obviously, when you see somebody say, can I help you, really mean it. And really want to help them, try to work with them, understand them. Okay. All right, what else? Yeah, Greg? Greg Beard? Unity necessarily means setting aside individual goals and working towards team or you know whatever the organization happens to be goals and so you've got to have enough humility to be able to do that um, you know you take the, the the sports analogy that we see all the time especially in baseball you hear them talking about the clubhouse and how everybody gets along and you know everybody's pulling for each other rather than one guy pulling for himself and you know the rest of the team can do whatever they want 
and, and we understand that in the sports world. And it's it's the same thing in anything we're talking about. Yeah. And so we've got to have enough humility to be able to set aside our own desires, our own greed, or you know whatever it might be, in order to let others, um, you know, have a say mm-hmm. in in what goes on. Yeah. Great. Yeah. How many locker rooms have the slogan "There is no I in team"? <coughs> Cliche, but so true. You know. That's right, yeah. Michael? So when I think about humility and unity, I start thinking about a lot of things that I learned from our many years with other stuff. But, and that is that only by the grace of God am I not this person. Mm-hmm. And, and the net result is, is I may have learned some lessons. I may have made a lot of the same mistakes, maybe worse. But the net result is, is just because I've gotten past it doesn't mean I'm superior or I am uh, better. It just means that I've gotten to a place that is better mm-hmm. and that hopefully you can give a perspective about, you know, I know what that feels like. I know what those things are like. Because that's where unity comes from. You know, most of the time on the other side of the coin when people are so angry and um, I don't know whether it's violent or just, you know, verbal. You know, it, it's it's usually because they're just not, they're they're not going to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there hopefully there's a time where they will. Mm-hmm. But I just think it has to be, you have to be very uh, retrospective about where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to impose something that you think I'm doing better than they are mm-hmm. or something like that. You're just trying to share the gospel and Jesus' love with them. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. The next trait is gentleness, with all gentleness. Oh, sorry. Yes, Deborah. Hi. I just wanted Hi. to say something. Um, I've heard that um, the difference between being humiliated and being humble is I'm not thinking less of myself. I'm thinking of myself less. Right, yeah. That's really good. I love that. I've read that in Tim Keller before, you know, like because, you know, the irony is if you concentrate on being humble all the time, you're still focused on yourself. Like you're thinking about yourself all the time. What do you think the solution is to, to not, to, yeah, we, we don't want to, we don't want to think less of ourselves. We want to think of ourselves less. How, how can you possibly do that? And. That's, that's pretty radical. Everybody says that, but nobody really does that very much. What? Think, but what else? What, what else? How do we get... Uh, okay. So if you, if you get obsessed with something more beautiful and interesting and true and good than yourself, then you don't want... You're boring to yourself your fears begin to evaporate, your past traumas don't define you anymore, you don't, you're not in survival mode and so you have to be angry and frustrated if you don't get what you think you, you, you have to have. Um, you, you know, you, your thrills are coming from somewhere else. You're exhilarated, you're, the beauty, all of that is, is from something beyond you. Um, astronauts talk about, that, and there's only a handful of these people who've experienced this, but there's a, I, I don't remember the name of the, it's a psychological condition of when you see Earth, 
from you know, thousands of miles away in a spacecraft and it's tiny, something about the smallness of it, when you come back to Earth, you're, you're depressed for a long time because you, you have this sense of, of magnificence and awe that no, not many people can get on the planet. I mean, maybe you come close, you know, staring at the Grand, uh, Grand Canyon or you know, El Capitan in Yosemite or something like that, but this, this feeling of like, you, you just become small and uninteresting. I'm obsessed with God. So the beauty of God, I think, the goodness of God, the truth of God. I mean, some of us are aesthetic, some of us are more intellectual, some of us are more ethical in our, our DNA bent, but all that, you know, what Plato called goodness, beauty, truth. God is the one who epitomizes that. And so I think that's why worship is prior to everything. You know, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. What's the next statement? You shall love the Lord your God. We're going to end up doing nine times out of ten what we love, what we desire. And I think humility is, is too much fixation in ourselves. So I appreciate Deborah mentioning that. How do you think, of, your, how do you think you know, of yourself less often? Why is it always reflexive, really? You know, everything and me. You know, Martin Luther said sin basically can be defined as humanity turned in on himself. Um, it's a selfish orientation. You're freed from that when you get fixated on God and realize, man, I'm, this, this is way better than me. Let's talk about him. I think that's part of it anyway. Yes, Greg, and then Greg. Any other Gregs? I think one of the issues that sometimes we, we see one side of it by looking at the opposite side, and I think being unselfish and not selfish is one of the biggest things that, that causes us to have all this division and all. In the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about even going beyond what our needs are, but do unto others the way you want to be treated and, and try to, to get rid of all those selfish thoughts, unselfish, mm -hmm. and become unselfish. That's great, because that brings up empathy, compassion. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to, go ahead, Greg. I was just going to add, Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but right. Christ lives in me. Right. And it's who's driving the, you know, who's driving our lives. Mm -hmm. Which brings up the memory verse, Philippians 2. The whole thing is, have this mind in you. What mind? A cruciform mind. You know? Um, dying for other people. Jesus. That's to be our mind. All right. I'm going to skip gentleness since it's so closely related to humility, and we're running close on time here. Um, and look at patience, or bearing with one another in love. Okay? That's a third character trait that if we're walking in a manner worthy of this one new humanity that we've been called to in the church, why is, or, or basically what's an example can you think of, of of patiently bearing with one another in love? Anybody think of an example? Feel free to mention the person next to you and how they irked you one time and you, you bore with them. I'm just kidding. You can say I have a friend if you want to. Yes, Erica, and then Randy. I will take, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the first one that comes to mind is like parents. Like think about the, the number of times that pre-children parents are probably the least patient with one another. Mm -hmm. And then when kids come around, it's because they love them. I think about my parents, like the stuff they put up with for me, you know, they love me. That's why they're patient with mm -hmm. me. Yeah. That's the one example that transcends all. And I think that that, not to get all 
spiritual, but I think that God puts that relationship in our lives because it's for us to see what, um, how God is patient with us. Yeah, no, that's great. Randy and then Greg. I mean, this is super quick, but Jake's example this morning of like the, the slow play of the, all the hundreds of years, mm-hmm. you know, and knowing, God knowing kind of what his people are going to do. Right knowing what, you know, they did at the at Sinai and what they're going to continue to do and all the hundreds of years and just dozens and dozens of generations. And the, you know, I like the way Jake put it when he said he knows they're not going to do it, but he wants to warn them all the same. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, Greg? Well, in my work and training, I've, I'm a technician. And I, that over the time, I've learned to think in a certain way uh-huh. and approach a problem a certain way and break it down to such... But other people don't think like that. And there can be, I guess you sort of say a clash sometimes, you know, they're, how they're raised or how they think is completely different from the way you do. Mm-hmm. And you gotta try to find some kind of middle ground. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And mine, yeah. Willie then. Oh yeah, Willie, and then Michael. Then we'll move to our next one. Okay, so um, I think, uh, you know, tolerating other pe- others' differences. You know, like we all take different walks of life. Mm-hmm. And you know, to kind of piggyback off what he said, you know, everybody's different. You know, we all go through different things. We're all brought up in different ways, but, you know, I mean, bearing with one another in love, we have one to relate to, and that's in Christ. Yeah. So, you know, despite what experience that we have, we all have Christ's experience to return to, where we all can, like, you know, meet as one, where we all can have the same understanding. Right. So good. And think of the difference between God and us. It was bridged by Christ. Way bigger than any difference between us, but we get so fixated on the differences sometimes. And, and he, he bore with us in love. Michael. So patiently bearing with one another in love is sitting next to me. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> patiently waiting for Jesus to do what he needed to do to me it was probably something that I would say is bearing. Mm-hmm. Appreciate all that, guys. All right, finally, uh, that one's not showing. Oh, there it is. uh, Commitment necessary uh, for oneness. So what kind of commitment necessary for oneness? We have to have the foundation, Jesus, Scripture, you know, the the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone, what God has done. We've got to have these relational character traits that really grow out of the gospel, grow out of biblical, the biblical narrative of, of loving God first and loving our neighbors selflessly and empathetically and so on. And then finally, we need just old-fashioned commitment if we're going to have oneness. And what I'm talking about here is, is, is togetherness. A commitment to, for lack of a better term, actually show up. Who are, who are you real close to that you haven't seen in 15 years? How many people that are your best friend? I mean, and if they are your best friend, you hadn't seen them in 15 years, it's because at one point you showed up for each other all the time and you were together all the time. You don't, you don't develop relationships without being physically proximate. You gotta, you gotta be together, right? I mean, look at the togetherness language in these two texts from Ephesians. Both in Ephesians 2, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, the whole structure, it's a building metaphor for the church here, being joined together, 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you will also being built together. We're growing. The picture here is not of individual growth. I'm not saying that's not biblical elsewhere. That's not the picture here. We're growing together. We're being built up together. Um, he, he changes the analogy over in chapter uh, 4, I think it is. No, it's, yeah, chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, it's a human body growing, the body of Christ. And he talks about all the ligaments and joints and all that kind of stuff. There it is. I have to get the text there. We attain to the unity of the faith. We are to grow up. The whole body joined and held together by every joint. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. Some versions say every ligament. So we're all body parts, right? Christ being the head of the body. What if your body, when you're maturing, had one section that just grew at 10 times the rate of the rest of it? Would you go to the doctor? Like, it, my right arm is four feet longer than my left arm. No big deal, though. It'll be fine. <laughs> Nobody does that, right? Or a building that has one part that's like, oh, that's a Lego brick Rick used instead of an actual cinder block. It'll work. Nobody does that. So it, it, it does require, this is where it gets down to, like, the individual stuff. Charlie was talking about, he was talking more about our relationship with Jesus, but this grows out of our relationship with Jesus. It is a collective communitarian picture of a whole body, but without the individual choices to be together, you don't, you're not having that. If, if the building's components aren't there, you don't have a building. It's like forest and trees. You, you can't, you know, they go together. It, it's about which, what our analysis, analysis is, you know, what lens we're looking through and we're talking about, it, but you can't have one without the other. So it just raises this question, what is, this, what is the significance of old-fashioned togetherness? for maintaining unity or restoring unity. Let's get a couple comments on this one, then we'll close up. This is a, like the most fundamental kind of dumb point, but it's like, you saw it. It's it, it just, those two texts are inundated with those togetherness words. Kendra. I think this is everything. The togetherness is everything, and it's also the hardest thing. Huh. I, 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 look at, I look at our church from when it started. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, We've been part of this church since it started in, what, 1994 or 5, whatever that was. And I look at how it's changed and grown. And, you know, people change and they get mad and go somewhere else or something happens. And I, I've, I've, I've struggled. How many times have you talked me off a ledge, right? Um, but it's hard. But the commitment to the togetherness it's like a marriage almost. Yep. You have to decide at some point Satan is not going to win. Yep. And when, it, it's emotional for me, um, when we decide that that unity is more important than ourselves, mm -hmm. our individual selves, that's when God is glorified. Yep. Word to that. Greg? We don't have to go back too far in the past to think about the significance of togetherness. What were we doing two, two years ago? For sure. You know, we were doing our best on Zoom to maintain unity. Mm -hmm. You know, we were having, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to sing, and we were, you know, trying our best to, to be together, and we were mm -hmm. praying together, and, and uh, we were having devotionals on, on Wednesday nights and that sort of thing. But was it the same as what we're getting now? Not even close. No. And how happy were we when we finally got to cast that off yeah. and, and got to be here together yeah. in person. So, I mean, we don't have to look back very far to, 
answer that question. Sure, when it's taken away, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, you should try preaching to a bunch of squares on a screen. <laughs> like I was up in my library with this rig I got all, you know, like trying to not show too much neck meat, so I've got the thing up here on 14 <laughs> books. And then I'd see all, some of y'all's things just turn to words all of a sudden, you know. I think Greg never did that, but, you know, your name, and I'm preaching to a bunch of names. I'm like, hello? It's the weirdest thing. It is not the same thing as this. God put us in bodies, right? It, it's Gnostic pagan thought that kind of looks at bodies and material stuff as not important. The Bible starts off with creation and says it was good. It was very good. I'm glad we had Zoom. Thank the Lord for it. Good riddance. God loved the, the declaration from the World Health Organization. Rick was telling me that they just said, it's over. Ah. Uh, yeah, great point. All right, we'll stop right there. But th just think about that. When you, we all make lots of decisions every day in our week, and there's nothing more valuable that God's given us arguably than time. We're choosing all the time to share in each other's lives or to sort of go solo. And I realize we're all wired differently. I understand that. God knows that too. It's one body, many members, and we all bring different strengths. But we also bring different weaknesses. And doing the hard thing, sometimes it's just going through kind of going against what we feel like doing in the moment and maybe growing, maybe learning to love something more than you thought you could because God knows you better than you do. He knows me better than I do. So we're not going to have unity if we don't share time and experiences together. I was talking with uh, Ben and Eddie before church about Paul's statement in Romans, you know, we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep, cry, and, and shout and praise together. Well, if, we don't, if we're not together together, we aren't even going to know what those things are. So, and we, we live in a time when we structure so much of our lives, like hard structure, you know, oh, I'm committed to that, that's in my phone. It's on Google Calendar. Oh, okay, so it's a law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be changed. You, you put yourself into it, you can get yourself out of it. I realize you might have made a commitment, it might take a few weeks or months, but I think that's one of the biggest struggles. If you're asking me as a preacher and elder, what, what are some of the biggest struggles of today? It's that everybody's, the culture just thinks it's okay for us to just slot every single thing so there's nothing left for us. You can do that. I mean, nobody's telling you. I mean, nobody's going to like come you know, beat you up or anything. But the consequences is, are that, well, I don't really feel close to people. Well, there you go. I mean, it honestly does, as Kendra said, come down to just are we... Are we prioritizing that? Um, so think about these things. Uh, next week, I'll be preaching on motherhood. Um, if you're, uh, I still want you all to come. If you're a guy, please still come. Um, or a woman who's not a mother, uh, or not a mother yet, or haven't been a mother like with the kids at home in a long time. It's for everybody, really, it is. So um, we will talk about that next week and then get back to the topic of reconciliation, being ministers of reconciliation, which is our theme for the year. Thank you so much for your attention today. Uh, let's all together now stand and sing.